This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. Char Beauchard here. True story. I just hung up the phone with an SLP that had attended an on-site seminar. She said she loved the seminar, but she forgot to fill out her ASHA participant form. Sounds easy enough, huh? Uh-uh. The seminar was three months ago, and all the paperwork had been submitted, and ASHA doesn't take late forms. So I said, Linda, you have to file an appeal with ASHA. Then she said, this is a nightmare. I drove two hours to get there, two hours to get home, and now I have to file an appeal? I felt for her. And then I said, Linda, have you ever heard of SpeechTherapyPD.com? She said, no. I said, just get your CEUs online, girl. That's what I do. You don't have to leave home. They have over 500 hours of video, a huge variety of topics for SLPs that work with children and adults. And if you don't want to watch a video, then listen to the pod courses and get your CEUs that way. Then she said, they're pretty expensive, right? I said, uh, no. Their plans start at $89 a year, for heaven's sake. And then I said, do you want the icing on the cake? SpeechTherapyPD.com has scheduled a CEU cruise next summer to Italy and Greece. Woohoo! She said, okay, I'm looking them up right now. And so should you. SpeechTherapyPD.com. Check them out. Tell your friends. You'll be glad you did. Hello and welcome to The Speech Link, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Shar Beauchart, speech-language pathologist, and I invite you to join us as we share practical strategies to take your therapy to the next level. We'll talk with experienced experts who have achieved extraordinary results and teach you exactly what you need to do to do the same. Ready? Here we go. Have you ever put yourself in the place of a child that has, let's say, complex communication needs? Perhaps you even have an AAC device, an augmentative alternative communication device. And those around you, your therapists, teachers, paraprofessionals, all tend to try and talk for you. They meet your every need, and sometimes they even talk about you like you're not even there, thinking that you don't understand. Frustrating, isn't it? How are you going to learn and grow unless you are provided the opportunities to try and succeed or try and fail? That's pretty much how we all learn. On today's podcast, we'll learn how to engineer the environment so those with complex communication needs can grow, learn, and communicate One of my favorite strategies that my guest talks about today is how to use the expectant pause to allow communication to happen and flourish. You're going to love it. Grab your pen and paper. You've got lots of good practical information coming your way. Enjoy.
My guest today is Pat Mervine, a highly qualified, very experienced, extremely creative speech-language pathologist. She earned her bachelor's and master's from Trenton State College in New Jersey, and she began her career with three- and four-year-olds, then moved to the elementary school level in Bucks County Intermediate Unit, which is basically across from New Jersey, in Philadelphia, and has been there for 25 years. She's an important member of the assistive technology team, does staff and parent trainings, and lots of speech-language therapy. In fact, she says that the most important thing to know about her is that she has dedicated her career to improving the lives of children and adults, young adults, with mild to profound communication disorders. Pat has presented at numerous state and conference, national conferences, received many recognition awards, and is the author of several books, most notably three children's books. And Pat, I have those books and I love them all. And in fact, you may know her by her practical and popular long-running website, speakingofspeech.com, as well as her blog and her newsletter. On her other website, patmervine.com, Pat, M-E-R-V-I-N-E, she quotes, the limits of our language are the limits of our world. And she's going to share many of her techniques of how to broaden that world. Welcome, Pat, to the speech link. Well, thank you, Shar. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I am so excited and I'm so honored to have you here, Pat. I've been a fan of yours for many years. Now, I know that you could speak about a variety of topics and techniques, but today for our hour, you're going to share strategies to help us to help our students with more complex needs from kindergarten to 21 increase and expand their opportunities to communicate. Now, if that's an accurate summary, Pat, what are some of the specific items you want to cover today? In other words, where do you want to take us and why? Okay, well, definitely um, the point of today is to help people understand how to increase communication opportunities throughout the day. Uh, We know a lot about teaching children how to use their devices, how to use their um, augmentative systems, how to use their verbal language, but we don't often think about how to provide the opportunities for them to do it. So I'm really looking at that particular topic and, and in consideration with that, what are some of the barriers to communication that I've observed in my career? Um, what are some characteristics of our low-level communicators? And importantly, what are some characteristics of us and, and how that impacts on our low-level communicators? Um, the importance of modeling. And I want to give some really fun ideas on how to increase communication throughout the day that really takes the student's lead and goes way beyond choice making, because that is a place I feel that a lot of people get stuck. Um, The information that I'll share today will relate to our nonverbal students, but also to our verbal students who have limited communication. Um, There are a number of students I interact with right now, particularly those on the autistic spectrum, who um, are verbal, but they don't use it. And so what are we going to do about that? That would be the focus of today. I can't wait. Would you like to start... I have a quote here. It says, raise your expectations and communicate that to the student and others through your attitude, actions, and teaching strategies. 
Would you like to talk to us about expectations? Sure. When I'm in the schools as a assistive technology consultant, I go out to a lot of schools from elementary through high school and work with a lot of teams. My goal there is to support those teams in order to support the children. And what I have found many times is that people just don't have high expectations. Um, Sometimes it's teachers, sometimes it's therapists, but a lot of times it's really the paraprofessionals who really just are not trained and really do not know how to or what to expect from our students. And so a lot of the training I do really tries to help those paraprofessionals to understand. Um, as an example, we see paraprofessionals who really want to do everything for the kids. They see the kids, they're grandmoms, you know, they see the kids, they, they want to be grandmotherly to them and do everything for them. And that's very nice, but it doesn't help. Um, there are other people who um, are in the field, whether paraprofessional or professional, who look at our kids and only see the disability. And what I really want to try to do when I'm working with teams is to make them focus on the abilities and then how to stretch those abilities, because anybody can see the disability. Um, it's what do you do about that? So that to me, expectations... I think is really probably one of the biggest barriers to overcome. Other barriers that we have to deal with for communication, of course, time is always one. Money is always another. Um, you know, those kinds of things, you know, do we have the time to plan for the kids? Do we have the money to get the kids the equipment that they need? Those are all big issues. But I think number one is really adult expectations and, um, and behaviors. I think that can be a big barrier. So what can we do? What are some suggestions that you have to help us raise expectations? Well, um, one thing that I encourage people to do is read. Uh, well, first of all, of course, always working together as a team, and we can get into that. But, but I think that some outside reading can be very, very helpful because it, it can be very eye-opening to people to really hear and learn from people who have been in that situation, people who have been severely disabled and how they felt about how they were treated and how they felt about the expectations or lack of expectations that were placed on them. Um, a couple of good books that I always recommend. Um, one is My Stroke of Insight by um, Dr. Jill Bolt-Taylor. Um, she is a neuroscientist who most ironically was stricken by a horrendous stroke and lost all of her abilities to communicate. Receptive language was affected, expressive language was affected, as well as all her physical abilities. So basically, she had to start from square one. And she really provides some amazing um, insight as to how people should react with her. Um, another book that I recommend is Ghost Boy by Martin Pistorius. Um, he was stricken at age 12 with um, a rare virus that basically caused him to be totally locked in. And he didn't start to regain any function for about 10 years. So the story that he tells as a child going through this 
is remarkably similar to what Jill talks about as an adult going through this. And, and basically, they're talking about how people approach them, how people interact with them. Um, so uh, just some of the insights that, that they have shared, um, don't yell, <laughs> speak slowly, but don't yell, just enunci- enunciate clearly. But the most important thing is to be a safe place. That's a quote from Jill. Um, she says, reach me, respect me, I'm in here, come find me. And that was basically what Martin said too. He said that People need to reach in and try to pull them out because they have no way of getting out by themselves. Another thing that was really, um, I think, a, a great quote from them is to speak directly to them and not about them. And I have to say that's something that um, really got me into the field to begin with. When um, I was a, a young adult and hadn't gone to school, had a different career before speech, I had an uncle who had ALS, and uh, he was a very, very dear uncle, and I went with my aunt to some of his medical uh, appointments, and the first thing I noticed is that the medical profession, the doctors and the nurses, would talk over him, under him, around him, through him, but really not to him. Uh, The other thing I noticed is that our family, as my uncle lost his ability to communicate, which he did pretty early on, basically they would say, hi, Uncle George, and then turn away and have a conversation with everybody else. So he really lost, I think, a lot of his humanity when he lost his ability to communicate. At that point, I knew it was wrong. I knew that something had to be done, but honestly, I wasn't trained either. I, you know, I was a credit manager for a newspaper, so I really didn't have any clue either how to communicate with someone who couldn't communicate back. And that's basically why I went to school. So um, that that's where that comes from. So I really think that unless you have that personal experience as I did with my uncle, I I think that it's important to read some of these books and find out how the adult behavior does impact on the student and how those expectations can make such a huge difference. Um, Another experience I had was um, with my own dad, and I did write a blog piece about this Um, back in October. My dad passed away in in, October. August, just a year ago um, at this time, and he had had a stroke. And uh, my dad basically gave up because he was so put off by the, um, what I call the therapy voice, you know, the person who was dealing with him just in his face, yelling, demeaning, it was just not appropriate. And um, it was, it was very difficult situation. So again, even as a therapist, I was able to observe this. And that's what I try to communicate to the teams. Watch your own behavior. Watch your own presentation. It's very, very important because kids do read our signals. The other thing, too, is kids do hear what we're saying. And I think it, it can be very, very upsetting, as, as Martin will tell you in his story, that people will say things about the kids right in front of the kids, thinking they don't understand. And if there's one thing I've learned in this career, 
you always presume that the kids understand. Uh, whether they react or not, whether they're ever able to indicate that they do understand, always presume that they do. Yeah, that was that was a, a tough time, no doubt, with your dad. Um, let's get into some of the specifics with the prompt hierarchy. Sure. What do we do? This gives us information as to what we could do. And I know that there's several um, items in that hierarchy. Would you share some of that with us so that we get really specific here? Sure. Um, I think to, to do that, first, we need to know what are some of the characteristics of our low-level communicators. Mm-hmm. These are kids who rarely initiate interactions. And if they do, the initiations are often inappropriate. They're often prompt dependent. And they also use behaviors which are really communication in disguise. So, so those are the kids that we're talking about. But what we know about us, and I think we need to, you know, take a step back and look in the mirror as far as um, therapists, teachers, paraprofessionals working with these kids. And I'm guilty of all of this. So <laughs> I say this without reservation. We tend to dominate interactions. We preempt turns. We fail to respond to initiations. We anticipate their needs and thoughts. We make it unnecessary for them to really communicate. And as I was saying with my Uncle George, we tend to avoid interactions that make us feel uncomfortable. So if someone doesn't know how to communicate, we tend to pull back and and talk around them. The other thing that we're guilty of when we do interact is we use yes-no questions. Um, And sometimes yes-no can be a very difficult concept for some of our kids. We give chains of directions. We ask multiple questions at one time and not allow for any kind of response. We speak too rapidly. We fail to engage in social communication. And a lot of times our messages don't match, our verbal messages don't match our body language and our facial expression and our tone of voice. So that's all really very important. So where the prompt hierarchy comes into play is where we have basically set up situations where we're communicating with the students and we allow them to initiate if we can. We put things of interest in their area, whatever, and we just wait for them to make some indication. That would be considered, you know, an independent uh, response, which is, is what we would like. But so often we don't get there. So often our kids don't have that. So then we need to start prompting. And what we do is we use a prompt hierarchy. It can vary depending on your um, work situation, uh, the teaching philosophy um, in your in your program, or it can be the you know the students' needs. So a prompt hierarchy is not something that there is one to follow and that's it. But basically, you're going down the list of letting them initiate. And then you pause. And I think the pause is the most important thing we can learn. Because as I said, with what we tend to do, we talk too fast, we talk too much. And unless we give our students a chance to process what they've heard, what their thoughts are, and then to express them in whatever way they do, we run right over that. And and our kids seem a lot more impaired than they are. So we let them try to initiate on their own. If they don't, we give them a a prompt, you know, to get them started. 
then we might, um, you know, with an expectant pause, then we might give an indirect verbal cue, you know, then, and like, so it's, do you want something? (laughs) Or I see you're looking at that. What do you want? Then sometimes we have to go to a direct verbal cue. You need to ask for this or, or give them the model or tell them what to do. If you're in a following directions kind of situation, give them that direction. Then you might need to use some more, more direct support where you are giving them partial prompts. You're giving them the carrier phrase. You're helping them along. You're leading their elbow toward the symbol or the object that you want them to touch or reach or push. Um, you're, you're doing all of those things, but pausing after each one. Finally, at the very end, if they're not able to do it, then of course you give them the full model and you support them with that. But the pausing, I think, is the hardest thing for us to learn. So whenever I do you know, group trainings, I always end up deputizing everybody as being the pause police. You have to watch <laughs> yourself. You have to watch each other because we all pause differently. And pausing is a really, really hard skill for some people to learn, speech people especially. Yes, Because definitely. we all talk so much. <laughs> but But it's the truth. And if we don't pause, then we're not really seeing what the kids can do. Basically, we use that that prompt hierarchy for data collection. So you you go through the prompt hierarchy and then you mark when they responded. It's very important that the teams all decide on how long to pause for each child because each child may have a different level of processing. I've had some kids who you can pause for a silent count of five or silent count of 10, and then you get a response. Or if you don't, you know it's time to move on down the prompt hierarchy, but at least we're trying to be consistent with that. I've had other kids who have waited, you know, you have to give them a silent count of 30, um, maybe a little longer, and really pay attention. Are they still processing or have you lost them? It's part art, part science, I think, you know, to, to get to know the kids. But it's very important that you go through that process because that's the only way you'll know what the kids are really capable of doing. And it's the only way that you're really providing them with the autonomy that they need. You know, they may need more time and you may never give it. So that's important. Um, I, I, I have one example of a student who was prompted throughout the day. He was a little guy, five or six years old in a wheelchair in a multiple disabilities class. And uh, he had to, this teacher would give the prompt, you know, go check your schedule, which was over on the board. So he had to navigate through the room with furniture and other kids and whatever in his wheelchair, get over there. He had to pick a card off the board. And then the, the procedure in the class was to take that card that was all done and put it over in a basket and then look for the next one. So it was kind of an awkward situation for him, and they could have improved that a lot, but that's what the other kids did, so he was expected to do the same. There was always somebody right behind him or right in front of him, clearing the path, doing this, doing that, getting him over to the board. He would reach for the card. When he would pick it up, they would take it because he had to wheel himself over to this table where the basket was. And so he was prompted and supported the entire time. 
Um, one day the teacher gave him, uh, gave him the direction of go check your schedule. And uh, the other assistants in the room were busy with other kids. The teacher got a phone call from her boss, so she had to take it. She was on the phone for about five minutes. And as she was, she was watching this student. He navigated through all of the barriers in the classroom to get to the board. He reached up and grabbed the correct symbol by himself. Nobody had to point to which one it was. He got the right symbol. He paused for a minute. He put it in his mouth. (laughs) He turned around with the wheelchair, went over to the basket, took it out of his mouth and dropped it in the basket. (laughs) So it was the first time that they said, I mean, I have to say the teacher came screaming down the hall to get me to say, oh, my God, you can't believe what he just did. Yeah. And that was a long pause. I mean, we typically wouldn't do that. But, but the point is that it was such an eye-opener for everybody on the team. Like, wow, if we back off and pause, once they know the routine, we should be backing off and letting them do more and more and more. And, and he was so pleased with himself at the end of it. And I have to say that after that, everybody looked at him differently. And, you know, instead of this little five or six-year-old kid with severe disabilities in a wheelchair, all of a sudden he was a kid who could do. And what they started to do with him by raising expectations, seeing what he could do, I mean, it was it was just wonderful. So that's the way we need to approach all of our kids. And, and that pausing is what allows them to show us. And I'm wondering if maybe even videotaping these interactions, not only so that we can watch the child, but what we do and what we don't do and kind of analyzing to see where we can can be more supportive of that child. Absolutely. Um, I always encourage teams to videotape, not for anybody else, but for themselves. Um, uh, just as an example, um, we had been through a training that with a team in a classroom. This was a life skills class and gave them training on how to pause. This The whole focus of the training that the whole team went to one day was all about this prompt hierarchy, raising expectations, and how to pause. So the next day, the team was to go back into their classroom and videotape a routine that they always did without doing any changes. Just get a baseline of what you always do, which was a little weird doing it after they had just had the training. But in any event, that was the point. You know, that's the way it worked. So they had to videotape snack. So as they're videotaping the snack, and I'm running the camera to help them, there were a couple aides in the room, the teacher was in the room, and um, an OT who had all been through this training. So you know they were going to be changing their behavior a little bit just because they had the training. But in the middle of this snack, one little boy who was in fourth, a fourth grade age had to go to a fourth grade reading class. So the prompt was given to him, you know, you need to go to reading now, it's two o'clock. So he gets up and he goes to the door. Well, we're in a very old building and the door would always stick. So he he jiggled the handle a little, little bit and he didn't leave. Now, normally somebody would run right over and open the door, right? But because they had had this training, they were trying to, no, 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 we're just going to pause, see what happens. So they're, they're trying to apply this already, which was excellent. The teacher gave him, I told you, you know, it's two o'clock, you need to leave. He jiggles the door again. 
he just stands there. Now, this is a kid with low initiation. He can read, but he doesn't really communicate his wants and needs well. So the teacher then starts to use proximity. And he said, you know, you need to go. Is there something you need to do? And finally, he had to get to the point where he was right up in front of the student. And he said, sometimes I need help. Is that what you need? What should you say? And the kid finally said, I need help. So the teacher said, okay, I will help you. What do you need help with? He said, I can't open the door. He opened the door for him. Great. Well, this seemed to go on forever. And we, we all thought, you know, the day's going to end and the kid's still going to be standing at the door because he wasn't asking for help, but everybody's trying to hold back. I took the videotape back into my room afterward and I ran it back and I watched. That entire thing only took three minutes and I did a little tick every time he was prompted. He was prompted once out of every 10 seconds. So, I mean, you can just imagine, you know, how how many times we just don't wait. You know, we just don't wait for these kids. And, and that prompting and pausing, pausing can be painful. You know, it seems like it goes forever, but it really doesn't. So, so that's just another example of, of how important that can yeah. be. Yeah, I love it. It's, you know, I would think it is probably one of the more difficult things to do. We're programmed, many of us are women. Mm-hmm. We're at home. We do for our families. Um, once in a while, we do for ourselves. Um, right. But we, you know, we handle things, you know, we we direct traffic and make dinner and, you know, we do everything or at home. And then we sometimes transfer that at work mm-hmm. and with our kids. And we think, oh, we have to do for them. That's right. Mm-hmm. And oh my gosh, I would think that I would have to literally make that conscious decision to say, okay, I'm not going to do this. Here's what I'm going to do instead. I'm going to stand here and wait. I'm going to indicate to the child by my facial expressions that I'm waiting for the child to indicate somehow to me what they want. I mean, I would think that would have to be so deliberate. I'm wondering how long does it take to become a more natural thing? Well, it's interesting because exactly what you're saying is true. Um, my own son, who was a normally developing child, you know, I cut up his meat longer than I needed to yes. <laughs> until he said, I can do that. Yeah. I tied his shoes longer than I needed to until he said, I can do that. Mm-hmm. A lot of our students can't say, I can do that. You know, so so that's where we tend to forget that we need to be teaching them how to do these things and not just do for them. Um the other, the other point of it is, as I was saying in the very beginning, um, sometimes teachers and even paraprofessionals, especially paraprofessionals, aren't trained in these skills. And it does feel awkward. We're used to doing. If somebody is in need, we do for them. And they need to learn not to. They also need to know that by not doing doesn't mean they're not working. And I think that's a big barrier right there is that say you're, you're an assistant in a classroom and you just 
stand there, you know, looking expectantly, but just stand there. If anyone comes in, it looks like you're not doing your job when in fact you're doing a wonderful job. Um, And that's something we even explain to parents. We show these videotapes at times to parents to show them, look, this is what your child can do here. These are the expectations. These are the cues. These are the prompts that we're giving. This is the kind of pausing that we're doing. And look, they can do this entire routine by themselves, or they can participate in this interaction by themselves. They can do it as long as we allow them the supports and the structure for that to happen. Um, But when we show them the tape and the the aide or the teacher is just sitting there, like pecs, for example, you sit there with the expectant hand and you just wait. Sometimes you even turn your head away so that they have to get your attention. It looks like you're bored out of your mind, Mm -hmm. but in (laughs) fact, you're really providing the opportunities that they need to seek that attention, to gain that attention, and then to communicate what they need. Yes, excellent. So it it is unnatural. It does feel unnatural. Hey, busy SLP, Char Beauchart here. Here's a tip from me to you. Every week, become a lot more informed. Sign up for Therapy Matters at charbeauchart.com. It's free. Learn our tech and language tips and techniques and tons of ideas for making your school therapy life easier and more effective. I've been a therapist for 30 plus years and I love to share what I've learned. Sign up for Therapy Matters, read it or listen to it at charbochart.com. You'll be glad you did because the therapy that you do matters. Sign up now. Well, I know when going into the classroom and watching, you know, at whatever level, general ed or special ed, and watching paraprofessionals interact, I think a lot of times there's an emphasis on, okay, we have to, quotes, get the right answer. So I'm going to steer them to, here's the right answer, and then we move on, rather than emphasizing, here's a teachable moment, and I want to teach you how to figure it out. Well, we have to look at the agenda and whose agenda is it? You know, a lot of times teachers feel very, very pressured with time. You know, we have to get this done by the time the bell rings. You know, they set up a schedule and they feel like they have to accomplish X, Y, and Z in a very short amount of time. And they just provide the kids with as much support as they need to make that the goal. The goal is the accomplishment. The goal is the the schedule, you know, meeting the time limits on the agenda. Or it can be making a beautiful art project. You know, the goal can be to make beautiful art projects that we can send home or hang on the wall. When in fact, I look at an art project and I don't care if it takes all morning, if the kids are engaged go for it. And I don't care really how it looks at the end. If the child has been actively involved in in making their own choices and directing the activities of others and making requests and problem solving and doing all the things that go into creating even the simplest art project. To me, if they have done all of those things, I don't care what it looks like at the end, and I don't really care how long it took because we need to focus our attention on what are the real goals of this activity. 
We've done snack for, you know, we've had snack last forever, but we have kids getting up and serving each other, interacting with each other, going way beyond the choice making, making comments, filling out, you know, participating in voting what they want, doing um, a survey chart as to who likes this and who likes that. And I mean, you can just go on and on forever and you can work in every IEP goal in every student in the class into something like that. And that's really, I think, the most important way to start building these communication opportunities is to look at the activities that are already going on in class. You have a morning meeting, you have snack, you have maybe a a reading activity, a math activity, you have your specials, your art, your music, whatever. Look at those routines that go on through the day and Make sure that they are actually routines, not just activities. Activities can happen randomly. They can happen in any order. They can be very variable. But a routine is a routine. You know, it's got a clear beginning. It's got steps that are predictable. And it's got a very clear end. And if you can look at those routines throughout the day and set up opportunities to communicate throughout that day, you're going to be meeting so many more communication goals for these kids um, I, I often ask the teams that I'm training to to write out their routines. You know, what are the steps that happen throughout the day? And they're often very amazed that there really isn't any communication built in. You know, like the morning routine, getting off the bus. All they really need to communicate is hello, you know, the greeting. But then it stops there. So we think, okay, now how many other places can we build some communication into all of this? What can we do? How can we facilitate that? So I have them then write out what the teacher's role is and what the student's role is. And then we basically weigh it. You know, if there's way too much in the teacher's column and not enough in the student's column, we need to change that routine. We really need to look at that differently because they're just not providing the opportunities that they need. So, so scripting, I think scripting is very important. Scripting is important so that those routines are followed no matter what adult is running the show, whether it's an assistant, the teacher, a substitute, the therapist, anybody can pick up the routine and follow it. And then always looking at how can we raise the bar? You know, once they start to achieve, how can we raise the bar? You know, not just stick with the same routine that you started in September and you're still doing it in June. You mentioned the term scripting, and I can I assume that that is where we are suggesting helping teachers, maybe even parents, to take an in-depth look at that group interactive time, whether it's getting off the bus, whether it's coming in, taking off your coat, you know, finding your seat or your table, maybe it's snack time, maybe it's the art. I love that whole art time because you're working with tangibles and there's interaction there and there's creative things going on. Yes, you get the final project, but that whole interactive time is amazing. And you're talking about scripting or at least taking an in-depth look at the interactive opportunities during those times? Is that what you're calling scripting or am I missing the boat? No, no, absolutely. A lot of times when our teachers start the scripting, what, they're st- what they do then is, well, what choices can we offer here? 
And so they get stuck on that choice making, you know? And so my feeling is if you're making choices, let them make a lot of choices. You know, if they're, if it's a snack, you know, do you want something to eat or just drink? They say eat. Do you want to eat cookies or crackers? They say crackers. Do you want saltines or do you want goldfish? <laughs> you know, I mean, just drill down, give them lots of opportunities for that choice making. But then let's get beyond that, like, like way beyond that, because that's only so motivating, you know, uh, and, and that's only some of what we do. One time I did a little study of myself of how many times did I need to request something? And it was like twice in a day. I, that's all I had to do. And one of them is because I went out to dinner and I had to make, a, you know, a request of the waiter. But, you know, we it's not something that we do all day. And so then I thought, well, what do we do all day? So basically, you know, can these kids, even if it's greeting, even if we're talking about kids with very low uh, communication skills, do they always have to say hello? Can, how else can they greet? What are some other things they can say? Um, can they express their feelings? Can they ask or answer a question? Can they make comments? I mean, when they're eating, you know, even even our very young kids that I had in Easter Seals, they always had a yum and a yuck, you know, yeah. so we're asking them, well, how do you like that? So they make the choice of what do you want, yum or yuck, mm -hmm. you know, tell us about it. So, um, so a variety of comments that would be age appropriate to the kids. Um, sometimes, you know, we can even low functioning kids, you can put on a switch, um, you know, when they go to their special to the music teacher, hello, what are we doing today? Or are we playing an instrument or listening to music? Anything to keep that interaction going, letting our kids ask a question because it makes the teacher respond a little more and gives them a little more interaction with the kids. Can they maintain a conversation? Can they just go, uh-huh, uh-huh, I get it. You know, the things that we all say, those introverbals, it, it doesn't have to be full sentences. Um, it can just be anything to keep them going. Can they complain? You know, we all do that, but a lot of our kids, we don't teach them really how to complain. Um, Giving directions of others, you know, the, the power of communication is really the power to influence other people, isn't it? I mean, that's really what we're doing all the time. And so can our kids direct? So we take something like a, a snack activity or an art activity or, or anything that involves multiple steps. We break it down into multiple steps. We make sure that we do like a task analysis of all of the different things in here that a student can do. And we back ourselves out. So what we're really looking at is, what are we doing now? Look at all the steps we are doing as adults. Pull that out, let the kids do it, and then let the kids tell each other what to do. Let the kids direct each other. Um, it can be very valuable. You know, uh, I had one time I was working with the, the 18 to 21 population. This was in a multi, multiple disabilities class. And they did a lot of tasks for the school. They sharpened pencils. They crushed cans for the 
uh, recycling. They um, stapled papers, collated and stapled papers for the third grade tests and, you know, whatever. They did all of these things. And all of these things have multiple steps. It was not just one and done. There were multiple steps. And either they did it on their own, multiple steps, or we did an assembly line, multiple steps. But one girl in the class who was the brightest girl in the class, but she had very severe CP and really had no movement of anything other than her right elbow. Um, but she could see what was going on, even when the other kids couldn't. Well, she became like the the line chief. <laughs> she was the boss. We gave her a hat that she wanted and said, you're the boss. Here's your switch. And she would hit that switch and tell them to get back to work. <laughs> you know, do it again. You need, you need to try one more time. So we would set up, you know, for her to scan and, and pick the messages that she wanted to gain the attention of the kids and give them positive reinforcement or get them back to work. You know, so she was actively involved as well. It just takes it just takes some insight, you know, into how can we do this? And I always tell teachers, if you find yourself saying it over and over again, stop and figure out some other way. Because what happens is when we are doing or we are saying over and over and over, we are creating that prompt dependence on these kids. We are creating these passive kids who, don't initiate. So to, to, to try to reduce that prompt dependence, I really tell people like, just exaggerate your pause time. You know, if you've been giving them 10 seconds, give them 20 seconds, silent count to yourself, give them a facial expression and body language that says, I'm expecting you to do something, but don't do anything until the kid responds. Let them do it. Um, Set up situations we all know about sabotage, you know, setting up situations where something is missing, something needs to be turned on, we're not doing it. We just wait, you know, just wait and see how long it takes for somebody to say, hey, you have to turn that on or I need, I can't brush my teeth, I don't have a toothbrush, you know, whatever. So so teaching them that. Also trying to use a lot more visual supports instead of those verbal or physical prompts. So all you have to do is just point, you know, this is the step you need to do. You don't say anything. And so they start to check that schedule on their own, check that little task analysis on their own and do each step without you telling them over and over and over. Um, fading those prompts gradually, you know, just being really careful, paying attention to your own behavior and then pulling back all the time, just like I had to do with my little guy who said to me, I can cook my meat. I said, oh, yeah, I guess you can. You know, I had to pull back, you know, and stop being the mom in that situation because he was being more independent. Um, so, again, ignoring the agenda, ignoring the clock, ignoring the bell, and really just focusing on the kids and the activities the participation that we want to get out of them in those activities. Um, you can use video modeling if that helps. And, um, you know, just really get the kids even involved in, okay, I did this step and they have to do something to indicate that's done, that's done, that's done, you know. 
Yes, it makes total sense. And and I'm sitting here thinking about you have two kinds of kids, the kids that are just sitting there and waiting to jump in in some way to participate. And then you have the other kid that just is reluctant to communicate. Do I do something different for them? Do I just add more pausing time? What do I do for them? Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that you need to do with reluctant communicators is to, first of all, treat them as though they're capable of responding, but they're just choosing not to. But assume that they can. Just assume that they can. You, You want to reduce or eliminate any confrontation. You don't want to put these kids on the spot. If they're reluctant to communicate, you don't want to be hammering them with direct questions. You know, just give them the space to communicate when they're ready. Um, Let them lead. Uh, A lot of times, as I said, we have our own agenda. We set the topic and we move with it. They may not be interested. You know, maybe they'll be a much more willing communicator if you're talking about what they like, if what they're interested in. Maybe they simply have no interest in, in our agenda but there. So, so what activities are they engaged in? If you have a little guy who, you know, really won't really communicate, but loves to play with Legos, start playing with Legos with him. Start building your own language in with him, not asking him any questions, not putting any demands, but you start talking about what you're doing with the Legos, making comments about what he's doing, just trying to engage him. And then from there, you can start to, oh, would you give me this? Or, oh, do you want this one? And you can start to build more and more interaction through what they're into. It might be dinosaurs. It might be trains. It could be anything that they're into, but seeking out their interest. Um, Just as an example, um, I was consulting with a, a high school boy. I guess he was about 17, and uh, he was a very reluctant communicator. He would do whatever you told him to do, but he didn't really talk and and never really lit up. You know, just you know, communication-wise, he never really lit up in an interaction. He just went through the motions. So we had a meeting with his parents at the IEP, and they, I said, what, what's he interested in? Like, what lights his fire? And they said, well, he loves cars. He's so into cars. He reads all these car magazines. I said, can you send them in? <laughs> you know, so they sent in a couple and we were very impressed with what he could tell us about these cars. It just never came up in the special ed curriculum. Yes. <laughs> you know? so, so we had no idea. But taking his lead really helped us to do that. Oh, Pat, I would love to just sit and watch you do therapy. You are an amazing therapist and, you know, your school, I hope that they realize just how fortunate they are to have you there to help them to, you know, make these discoveries and and learn from you. Girl, you're amazing. Uh, Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I do have one last question for you, and it's not about working with kids per se, but here's the question for you. It's kind of a semi-personal question, and here's what it is. What is an outstanding moment in your career? Okay. Well, I've been doing this for 26 years, so I've had a lot of really touching moments with kids and, and with parents and with teachers that have been very rewarding. But I think the most outstanding recently has been 
when um, we were trying to get funding for an iPad for communication. A number of our students have been using iPads. The school district would provide an iPad with a communication app, and they would use it throughout their school career. But I'm consulting now for a lot of kids who are in that approaching 21 age. And what happens is the district then takes the device back, meaning our kids are leaving school with nothing. So a lot of my work recently has been to get some funding, you know, for these kids, you know, what are they going to, how are we going to provide a device for them to use that they're already familiar with? A lot of these kids are on the spectrum. Uh, They're very used to their one device, but they're not good at changing to something else. The parents are already used to it. So we can't train them to learn something else as well. What are we going to do? So for those kids who have, um, say a Dynavox or, you know, another kind of device, it's easy to go through insurance to get those. But as I said, the districts have been providing these um, iPads for the kids. So going through insurance to get an iPad funded is extremely difficult. Um, We have been able to find a supplier in Pennsylvania, um, ACCI, that provides um, or that sells an iPad that has been dedicated, meaning it can't be used for anything else. It changes it from an off-the-shelf device to a dedicated device similar to a Dynavox or NovaChat or whatever. And um, we had to convince the major insurance company, the Medicaid insurance company in our region, that this, in fact, should be funded. Um, It took appeal after appeal. I had to go to court. I had to go to external review. I had to appear before panels. I got my state representative involved. I mean, I just fought and fought and fought for a year for these guys to get just one funded. It took a year to get one funded. I mean, I had to go down to the city, to the courthouse and, and I didn't know that we should have had a lawyer with us, so I had to be the lawyer. I mean, it was, oh, yeah, I'm going up against this major insurance company's lawyer. Oh, no. It was, yes, it was It was a very, very scary experience. But I knew I was right, and I had tons of documentation. And basically, I just kept arguing our case that I know the kid, you don't, and this is what the child needs, and you prove that I'm wrong. You know, that's really where the burden of proof came and they weren't able to do it. So we ended up, we won the external review. Wow. We won the court case. We got the device. And um, after that, and after many phone calls to the president of the company to make sure that we're on board with this, we um, now can get them funded. So I, that was, it was so rewarding because we have so many kids in that boat. And what, what were we going to do? You know, I mean, I guess we could try getting funding through the, the local Lions Club or, you know, something like that. But, but, but we wanted to go through insurance. Um, it's appropriate for them to use these devices. It certainly meets all the definition of medical need. Um, it it takes a lot of work. It definitely took a lot of work, but we've been very successful and we've had dozens of them approved since then. So that is um, such a relief, such a relief. And the the gratitude of the parents 
of these older kids, they are just so grateful because what would they do? You know, they, they don't know what to do once these kids get out of school, how to provide them with communication, but now they have something. So it's, it's all good. Very impressive. I am in awe of you and your persistence and contribution. Gutsy lady, <laughs> way to go. Good for you. My husband always says my middle name is she who will not be denied. So, oh, <laughs> maybe that's true. <laughs> but I did write about this on my blog too. So if anybody's interested, but there's a lot of good stuff on the blog. So just go and read. Okay. I love your blogs. I mean, you're an excellent writer and I love the practicality of what you write. So I just, you know, I am enthralled with you and I appreciate you and your contribution to our field, to our kids, to all of us SLPs. And thank you so much, Pat, for giving on this podcast. And I hope you come back and, and share some more of your information. Okay. Well, thank you very much. This has been a fun experience. I hope that people do benefit from it. Oh, I know we will. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the speech link. Please check out my other offerings at my website, charvoshart.com and also speechtherapypd.com. See you next time for more interviews, information, and insights. Until then, thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. Be well and God bless. Bye.